0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Welcome to another episode of Christian Humanist Profiles. My name is Coyle Neal, and I am coming to you uh, live from the Neal Compound in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, Joining me today in the studio, uh, which today happens to be my dining room table, uh, is Kevin Twitt. Uh, Kevin Twitt is a graduate of Berkeley College of Music and Covenant Theological Seminary. Uh, he's an adjunct professor at Covenant Seminary, uh, as well as at Reformed Theological Seminary and at Belmont University, where he serves as campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, he lives in Nashville with his wife and kids and attends Christ Presbyterian Church. Uh, today, he is here to, uh, to talk about the state of modern music in the church. Uh, but first, uh, uh, Kevin, tell us a little bit about what you do with uh, with your, I don't even know what to call it, organization, Indelible Grace. Indelible uh, Grace
1: Movement uh, Collective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's web website, not a band. I mean, yeah. right. So people have always been a little confused. Um, maybe I could just give a little of the history and the background. Sure, please. So um, I began, you know, full-time campus ministry work in 95 when I graduated seminary. Um, but already within RUF, which was a pretty small group then RUF is the campus ministry of the PCA president right. Church of America they were on about 30 35 campuses when I came uh, into the fold and they were doing a few um, hymns with new tunes they were doing some traditional tune hymns that you could play on guitar um, you know we usually you know you wouldn't have like an organ or Even a piano, usually in the meeting spaces we had. And then they were doing some scripture songs, trying to shy away from some of the modern, you know, praise choruses in the 80s and 90s. Um, But then, uh, you know, when I started working with students, uh, particularly at Belmont, a lot of them were from church backgrounds. And I would regularly have conversations with them about their doubts and struggles. And they would often feel like they weren't Christians because. They were having doubts and struggles, and I would ask them if they'd read the Psalms or sung the Psalms, and, you know, of course they hadn't. Um, but beyond that, I felt like the songs they were singing were lying to them about what the normal Christian life felt like. Can you they, give us some Yeah, a sure. Bit. Songs that were like, Lord Jesus, I just want to love you all the time. It's all I ever want to do forever and ever. And people would look around the room and see their friends with their eyes closed and their hands lifted up, and they would just feel profoundly alienated. Um, if they weren't there and they felt like they had to pretend um, everything was happy to be part of the worship gathering. Um, and that the more I would talk with students, I was finding that that was really creating quite a, a spiritual dilemma. And it was also the beginning, I think, of people wanting to talk about being authentic, you know, and not, and, and you know, for good or for bad. I know it's a buzzword, but it was also something to that.
0: It wasn't and, a buzzword back then.
1: Yeah, it wasn't then, you know. Like Alanis Morissette was singing songs about being angry, powerful songs. And uh, my students wondered why we couldn't sing songs about anger in church, because we weren't. Um, And we weren't singing any of those kinds of songs. And so that's when I felt like we need songs, better songs to sing, um, songs that are honest about struggle, and songs that are more explicit about the gospel, because that was the other thing. In RUF, we don't have sacraments. We have, you know, call to worship, opening prayer, songs, preaching, um, closing prayer, sometimes a doxology. Um, but that, that means that every element we do have, we have to make the most of it. So I wanted songs that were contributing to deepening people's understanding of the gospel. Um, and there weren't a lot of those songs either. There weren't songs like Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder. There were songs that might mention the cross, but there weren't any that really unpack what it was about. So that's why I started looking for some of these older texts. And I'd been an old book collector for a long time. When I was in college, my senior year, started a Christian fellowship at Berkeley with some other friends. You told me you spent some time in D.C., so I don't know if you know. Um, Grace D.C., my friend Glenn Hoburg, Yeah, he was best man of my wedding, and we started this Christian fellowship together up at Berkeley. We both went to Berkeley College of Music. Yeah, sure. And so um, we, uh, it, it, at some point, I got put in charge of leading the Bible study. And I didn't know what I believed about anything. Um, my background was in a more liberal Episcopalian church. I'd gotten converted through young life, but I'd never really had any deep spiritual teaching. Then I was in music school, and I just you know did music stuff all the time. So I started going to used bookstores, just looking for books to figure out what I believed. And sometimes I'd read a book that would you know I would tell people that Paul didn't write any of the letters associated with him. <laughs> and the next week I'd stumble upon a BB Warfield book in a used bookstore. I'd read that and be like, oh, sorry, I was all wrong. Um, and after about 500 books that year, I kind of figured out what was the consensus and what was radical fringe. And as you know, uh, well, maybe you don't know, I'll just tell all your listeners, used bookstores are graveyards for fringe theological movements. (laughs) Like you don't find good solid reform books very often in used bookstores, but you'll find all the faddish liberal theological, um, books that come and go they get dumped in these bookstores. So if you're basically going to use bookstores trying to find Christian books and you don't know what you're doing, you're going to hit upon a lot of kind of books that aren't so helpful. And so that kind of had already, you know, gotten me towards the idea that some of these older writers were really helpful. And um, so when I was trying to find better songs to sing, I cracked open an old hymnal I had. I'd picked up a 1808, 1806, or 1808 copy of John Rippon's collection. And he was a predecessor of Spurgeon. Right. And there's a lot of good stuff in there, but there's no um, no music in hymnals before the Civil War. They're just texts. Right. And the congregation would have a number of tunes that they could sing. They could sing their whole hymn book to a half a dozen tunes. And so um, when I would find some texts, like the one I found that really struck me was Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul right. by this uh, hymn writer, Ann Steele. I didn't even know it was Ann Steele because it just had the name Steele. Right. Um, I think the title was Prayer Answered by Crosses or something. No, that's a John Newton one. But anyway, I I just thought, that's remarkable. Like, you're allowed to say that in church? Um, That's where my students are, and I really wanted them to know that they can sing those kinds of things. So I had to put a tune to it if we were going to sing it. Um, And that's kind of where some of this music was going on. We actually, in the main church service, there was a little bit of um, hymns, but a lot of the songs they were singing in the main church service Um, our college students didn't really like. So we had our kind of alternative worship time in our college Sunday school class and in our RUF meetings up at Belmont. And we just started doing some of this music. And after about five years of it kind of percolating among us, um, the RUF group at Auburn made a CD. And I thought, well, we could make a CD. We've got a lot of songs. I'd been a recording engineer. That's what brought me to Nashville. Um, I had a lot of good connections There I had amazingly talented students, like the Jars of Clay guys were in my Sunday school class. They were college age. They just had dropped out of college and moved to Nashville. I had Sandra McCracken, Matthew Jones, Matthew Smith, and Katie Bowser. I had all these amazing, talented people. Belmont students, half the school is music or music business majors. And the other half, probably half of them, really are into music. They're just majoring in something else. So it's just a pretty rich environment for being able to... To to make a record, we put 17 songs on the first Indelible Grace record. Didn't think we'd get to make another one, and then it really resonated with people. That was in 2000 that it came out, and um, you know, I, I started trying to understand why it resonated with people because it didn't. I didn't expect that, but it felt like it really had was connecting with people that wanted to find roots. Um, I tell people I found a sign in the antique store once that said, "My grandmother." Saved it. My mother threw it away. Now I'm buying it back, and it really felt like we were kind of getting on the other side of the wreckage that baby boomers had made of worship, trying to strip out anything that didn't seem, you know, palatable. Yeah, you know, I don't want to be unfair, but it, that, it felt like that.
0: No, that, that's, that's fair, and that yeah, is true. Yeah. So
1: yeah. So um, that that's kind of what we were trying to do. And and um, I, you mentioned that you know some of the some of the texts that we use, especially in the early records, weren't. Text that we knew people still sang, but people did. Um, so then I've continued to look for more and more obscure texts. We've never wanted to deconstruct church music. If there was a good usable tune, we were happy with that. And actually in our REF meetings, you know, we do one modern song, two retuned hymns, and one traditional hymn in our meetings. And the REF hymn book that we put out is half traditional tunes, half new tunes. If you just listen to the records, you would think that all we're doing are retuned hymns. But that's because those records, we were just going to share the new songs that we'd written, not necessarily right. traditional hymns that we play all the time. Right. I'm sure there's some traditional hymns that we do more than any of our retuned hymns.
0: Right. And there's no particular reason to put out a record of traditional Yeah, hymns that...
1: yeah. We put "Oh the Deep on that first record. You right. know, that's a traditional one. I thought when the Hymn Society's magazine reviewed it and they talked about how maybe a church organist could take some tips from the. Approach that we took, I just thought that was really interesting.
0: Yeah, well, and in some of those, of course, even if they are, even if they are traditional hymns that once were well known, they're not necessarily known anymore.
1: Yeah, I, here's what I I feel like: no matter what you do, it's pretty niche, right? Like if you do, there's really no song except like Amazing Grace that you can and be that vision that you can count on every student, even from a church background, knowing. Yeah. Like some of them come from churches where they don't do modern Christian songs. Some of them come from churches where they do hymns. Um, in the Baptist world that I'm in, I've realized that hymns mean things like In the Garden and, you know, Schmalti, Victorian. Yeah. What, um, they're not even actually hymns. They're gospel songs. Right. But um, a lot of people um, listen to those and hear me talk about why I love hymns, and they're like, really? Why do you love that? I don't like that one at all. <laughs> I think it lies to people about the
0: normal Christian life. Right. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm torturing my politics students this semester by making mm-hmm. them sing as a class, you know, class of mm-hmm. 50 students, uh, A Mighty Fortress. Yeah. And uh, the uh, for, for, you know, various, they have to write a paper then about the yeah. you're working together as a group, yeah. doing something they all hate doing and none yeah. of them are very good at. So there's a political lesson there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, at the beginning of the class, I, I did sort of a, a straw poll of uh, which of the students had ever heard this hymn before. Yeah. So, you know, Mighty Fortress, the, the standard yeah. Protestant hymn. In uh, a class of 50 students at a Christian university, there were two of them. Oh, and, and Dang,
1: I was counting on that for chapel tomorrow, being the ones that they would know. Yeah. <laughs> that means and, they won't know any of them.
0: Well, they, they, they will know it now. At least, at my at least your students, students yeah. It. And uh, they have done yeah. it in chapel a couple of times yeah. since then yeah. because of the 500th yeah. anniversary.
1: But so, isn't that amazing? Yeah, we're going to do praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. You know, Which, It
0: should be a classic. But yeah, but people won't know it. Right.
1: And so in some ways, it's like, you know, people are like, why should you teach people new tunes? Well, everything is a teaching to somebody. Right. Um, so I think you should think in terms of worship is formative, like it or not. I, if people ask me, you know, what's the most important thing you could teach people? I think it would be that worship is formative. I don't think many people realize that or think that. They think that it's expressive and emotive. They don't realize that it's shaping them, right. um, you know. Uh, Jamie Smith can tell you why, you know. Um, uh, sure, but th- but there's a lot there's a lot to that. It's formative, and I would go on to say it's formative, like it or not. It's always modeling something, and a lot of, you know, even the DNA of your church is caught rather than taught, and the songs have a lot to do with it. You know, you can talk about how you're a welcoming place for broken people, but if you never sing laments, then they're going to feel like they have to pretend everything's fine whenever they open their mouths and do, you know. Either they're listening or they're responding, and every time they respond, they're having to pretend that everything's fine. Um, I don't think that's very helpful or very balanced. Um, so worship is formative. That's the main thing I would try. And if worship's formative, then it matters what we sing. Right. And you know, and then you can start talking about what things might be helpful to sing. And then you know,
0: and, I think, and how then we you sing. can
1: have yeah, and how we sing yeah, sure. And
0: that's well, yeah that that's that came up in Sunday school today. Uh, mm. We're sort of talking about the the transition in the 20th century with the baby boomers, yeah, uh, from congregational singing to you know more praise band style, and the, yeah. the shift from worship is something we do as a church body to worship is entertainment, yeah. Uh, and and of course, it's not like there's just one time yeah. when this happens, yeah. But it, it's well,
1: it, you know, that goes back and forth a long time, of course. Um, the Council of Laodicea banned congregational singing in the late 300s. We're not quite sure how thoroughly that was enforced, but it seems that by the fourth, fifth century, um, singing was restricted to priests, train choir, you know, train choirs, and really like the reformers, like when Calvin shows up in Geneva, they hadn't been singing in Geneva congregationally for a thousand years, right? Right, and so you know some of these guys they kind of were starting from scratch in a lot of ways. Luther or Calvin begged the city council to let him try singing, he writes about how cold and lifeless their singing was and their prayers, sorry, their prayers were. He's like, we should just try singing, it can't hurt. And they won't do it. And then he gets kicked out of Geneva to Strasbourg. That's where he actually first hears people singing psalms in their own language, when he hears Martin Putzer. Um And then he's doubly convinced that we have to do it, and it's one of his four non-negotiables for coming back, when they finally invite it back, is that we have to try Start singing, but he actually published the first Geneva Psalter before he got called back to Geneva.
0: Um, (laughs) Very subversive of him, yeah.
1: I I mean, he just he thought it was so important. And what I find in the Reformed tradition is people don't know how much time and energy so many of our preaching heroes spent on music. Calvin worked on it really his whole public life. Martin Luther did too. Robin Lever has a new book on singing in Wittenberg. Um, and makes the point that the Reformation may have begun in 1517, it really took root in 1522 with the publication of the first hymnal in Wittenberg. Um, And that's true. There was a Catholic um, Jesuit a century after Luther who said that Luther damned more souls with his songs than his writings. And I think we don't think of it that way. We think nailing the 95 theses changed everything. That's not actually a very... Very true at all, right. you know. That wasn't like a you know. There, there's a lot more to it, and it took a little while to kind of get going. Sure. Um, but but that's true. And, and you know, uh, you, people might know about Calvin and Luther, but they probably don't know that George Whitfield put together a hymn book. Uh, you know, that he did. J.C. Ryle put together a hymn book, No most people don't know it. The New Banner Truth biography doesn't even mention it. And if you read the preface to J.C. Ryle's uh, hymn book, it's called Hymns for the Church on Earth. It's all about living in the already, not yet, and living in the struggle. It's not really designed for singing as much as it is for devotional use. Um, But yeah, so many of these people that we, you you read lots of their books. Archibald Alexander, we mentioned Princeton Seminary, um, put together a hymn book. Before the PCA, or before the Presbyterian Church in the U.S. authorized a hymn book, he put out a hymn book. Um, Charles Spurgeon put out a hymn book. I got to hold his own personal copy uh, yesterday at uh, the Virgin Library up there in Kansas City. And um, I could go on and on. Philip Schaff, the great church historian, put together a hymn book.
0: Christ in Song. Yeah, and it's great. Yeah, it's
1: fabulous, that book. So, so many um, people did that. Now, the, the Reformers were certainly concerned with spectator worship. You know, Luther got rid of the choir and put out a congregational book. Uh, Calvin got rid of the choir. And he would, uh, his interesting approach was he would teach the children the songs, hoping that then they would spread out in the congregation and then the adults could learn them that way. Um, And they also published um, settings with harmony in Geneva for use in families. He would never allow that in church. Theologians often make odd judgments about music and then try to back it up um, biblically. He felt that singing in harmony was um, not in keeping with being unified. Hmm. Um, And there are other people that have made... Kind of dumb judgments like that. Um, But again, you got to cut him some slack because he was starting from scratch. I should also point out that Calvin was not an exclusive psalmist guy. A lot of people think that. But actually, in that very first um, Genevan Psalter, he himself did a version of the Ten Commandments. So it wasn't even a scripture song. It was a paraphrase made to be sung. Right. So anyway,
0: well, and this is—I mean, this is—we're we're already talking about the, the big question yeah. I to ask you about is yeah. what's, what's your read of the state of, of music in the evangelical church today? Yeah, that's sort of what we're saying.
1: One of yeah, I think one of it is it's kind of so split up that that's a really hard question to answer. It depends on which evangelical church, um, and I—I I don't even think you can say which denomination. I don't know about the Baptist world, but even in PCA churches, there's quite a variety. Of worship, what's going on? If you think congregational singing is like the test for whether the worship is healthy or not, you know, then there seems to be less of it in a lot of ways. Um, some people's solution to that is we just need to teach everybody to read music again. I don't know if that's the key. I actually think there's lots of different ways of transmitting, you know, music, and um, that written music isn't very helpful for the kinds of songs we do. Right. I can tell you in trying to transcribe them, Western notation doesn't get some of the nuances that are are pretty important. But still, I'm not opposed to it. I had to learn to read music, and I do find it to be a helpful tool. But, you know, there are some people that want the church's worship to kind of be the sponsor of the Western classical tradition. I'm not in favor of that, because I think God has made a whole world full of God-glorifying potential, and different cultures have kind of worked different parts of that. Um, So I would love to see us appropriate excellent music from all. Sorts sure. of places, um, but I do think you know the the spectator worship thing is big. But I mean, a lot of Reformed churches have choirs, and they don't realize that's not part of the Reformed tradition, right? And that the reformers wouldn't have liked that.
0: Well, yeah, you're pulling all of the strong singers out of your congregation. Right? Yeah, potentially, or, you know, or at least
1: the ones that have time to go to choir practice.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. For for the record, I think the uh, sort of the acid test of does your church have healthy worship is if the power to your building dies, yeah. and you skip the songs that day. Yeah, I think that's that. Okay. No, that's maybe yeah. an esoteric one. Yeah,
1: but I see. For me, I, I, I would go beyond just are they singing, but is the singing forming them? Right. You know, like well, yeah, Colossians so it's, it's three talks theology, about right? yeah, wanting the word about Christ to dwell in us richly right. through singing. So I think the key is you know is worship driving you? I mean, is the gospel driving you as a community? Because it's the you is plural there. So sure. we talk about being a gospel driven community, and Paul says key for that is singing. Um, and I think that's pretty interesting. Calvin didn't think it was actually an element of worship. He he'd said the only reason we can justify singing is if it's a way of praying. But I think that's short-sighted. You know,
0: right. Luther, right, right. Luther
1: thought singing was an element in itself. You know, I don't know if very many people would say if you don't sing that you haven't worshipped, but it seems like the Bible's pretty close to that.
0: Right, I mean, you, you certainly have some some self justification to do, right, if you're mm-hmm. trying to defend that position, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, well, what a so you said that we're we're very fragmented, of course, in mm-hmm. the evangelical world, both both within denominations and, of course, between yeah. denominations. Yeah. Uh, is uh, I, I suppose the the benefit of fragmentation, particularly with me speaking as a Baptist, is yeah. you know, that means your 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 better churches aren't damaged, but of course, your weaker uh-huh. churches aren't helped. So yeah. if, if you're a uh, uh, if you're an, an average Christian, mm-hmm. what are you supposed to be doing you know, in this, this fragmented chaos? Mm-hmm. Like, how can we encourage our local church? How can we encourage yeah. the Christian world as a whole? Yeah. What do we
1: do? I don't know. I mean, I think it's hard to think about a big grand solution. I mean, where we are is not just, I mean, there's a lots of factors. I think sure. consumer culture is a big factor, and it's pretty hard to be countercultural by yourself. Mm. But you can you know, start at a local church level. Usually the best way to bring change at the local church level is to serve rather than just to criticize. Matter of fact, I tell students of mine if they go take a worship leading job at a church that they should set up an email address that goes directly to an elder rather than to them first for anybody that has criticisms about the worship. And they should hide their personal email address from everybody. Because people say the most horrific things to worship leaders that they would never say to a pastor, and it's a spiritual issue that the elders should probably get involved in in some cases. Sure. Now, if it's the elders that are <laughs> writing the emails, that's another you know issue. That and also I think getting I, I encourage my students you know to try to put together a worship committee with people from the different generations because a lot of times we have these conversations and we are snarky and criticize um, the people that aren't in the room. You know, and those baby boomers even, like, if they're like, you know, closing their eyes and, you know, got their hands in the air during some song that you just think is awful, well, you should probably talk to them about what is it about that song. Maybe they, you know, met them in a really powerful way at a particular time. One of my professors at seminary used to say whatever worship people were experiencing when Christ came alive to them, they'll probably always think that that was kind of special But of course, Lewis said you can't get into Narnia the same way twice. So there is something about not just living in that and trying to kind of live on yesterday's manna, so to speak. Hmm. Um, But I I do think that that can be really helpful for people to talk. And even I was part of a a church that was more of a cross-racial church plant. And one of the things the organizing pastor did is he had, there was an African-American worship leader and then a guy who leads the Indelible Grace touring band. Um, so we add all these return- tuned hymns that we do, and basically the organizing pastor put the two of them in a room and said, "You make a list of twenty songs you can 't imagine church without doing, and you do the same, and then you you know, pick ten songs that you can 't stand, and then let 's see what if there 's any overlap you know so basically everybody needs to sacrifice Marva Dawn, who I, I like a lot, she said one time that if our churches reflected the kind of diversity that they should, everybody should expect to sing songs they don 't like." Sure. Now that doesn't mean bad songs. That's another discussion. But they should expect that it's not everything's not going to be in their cultural wheelhouse. And I, what I was, you know, tell people based on a book by a guy named Brian Wren, who I don't subscribe to everything he writes in this book, Praying Twice. But this part is really helpful. Um, he says that because the church is incarnate in particular cultures, that you should sing your songs. You know that who, who is your church and. What is its heart music, um, and then, because the church is bigger than people that talk like us and sing like us, you should give some expression to that each week. There should be a particularity, but also things that are beyond just your particularity, and that's what I think is is very helpful. Sing our songs and other people's songs, and you can do that in different ways. One of the ways we're doing that within our UF circles and within double grace is we're singing older texts. But we're often singing them in music that's our music, right? And some of that is because of the logistics of what we have. Some of it is because I have a lot of creative students, and it's really powerful for them to be able to add their voice to what we're doing. You know,
0: sure. Well, uh, any, anything else on the modern church? Otherwise, I want to ask you uh, sort of more <laughs> in your wheelhouse with some of yeah. the historical hymns. The modern
1: church. I don't know. I've, I've, you know, I think in my younger years I, I would often argue about why we still need hymns in a postmodern world. But honestly, I feel like I don't need to make that argument anymore. I feel like it's coming around. Sure. Um, I, you know, my friend Bruce Benedict, who does Cardifonia, and he's up at Hope College. Um, he's working on his PhD at Southern Seminary on the Retuned hymn movement. And he's documented over a thousand retuned hymns since the first Indelible Grace record came out. So people are doing this sort of thing all over the place right. and in different cultural expressions. Um, so I don't feel I need to argue for that as much. And, you know, the passion guys have gotten on board with it. Lots of people are, you know, doing hymns or incorporating them somewhere, somehow. Um, so I, I try to just encourage people, particularly, I think the easiest way to get started with doing retuned hymns, uh, if that's what you want to try to bring into your church. See, in our church, we'd already went to modern sound and then it was, I was trying to get good content back in. Um, but even if you're singing like lots of hymns already, um, check and see if you're singing enough hymns about brokenness and sadness and struggle. So I think hymns like "Be Refuge of My Weary Soul" have a place. Ann Steele was the most, you know, prolific Baptist hymn writer before Fanny Crosby. She, uh, you know, her hymns were just everywhere. And really today, they're hardly in any hymnals at all. There's one, "Father of Mercies." in thy word that hangs on because there's relatively few hymns about the word of God. But all of her hymns, I feel like it probably had something to do with the Keswick movement. Um, You don't really keep singing laments when you teach people that the Christian life is easy if you just surrender, you know, and that victorious life kind of theology, which is just garbage. I think really late 19th century kind of excised so many of those kind of lament hymns out of our hymn books.
0: Sure. Yeah, I... uh yeah I, I think you're right about the uh, the sort of wheel turning uh, it's uh like you said it's it's sort of that baby boomers countercultural embracing the the more modern stuff well that's now the culture and if you mm-hmm. want to be countercultural edgy and yeah. you're young today, that means going back to the yeah. you know, the more traditional stuff yeah
1: and, and in some ways you know the Christian music business is you know kind of fallen on hard times right so the two things that have happened one. Like, there's a lot more room for people to do local, independent kinds of things. And Anyone can post out. to YouTube. Right? Yeah. Um, so now the great need actually is curation. Because right. anybody can create, but then how do you find good stuff? And my friend Bruce Benedict, who I mentioned before, is working on a retuned hymnal that'll take all these different resources that are kind of scattered among different groups and pull them all into one big resource. Which I think that's going to come out sometime this year, go online, and that's going to be really cool. We have the Indelible Grace hymn book. By the way, if people don't know about that, we have all the lead sheets, um, guitar vocal demos, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. PowerPoint slides, um, piano music for most of the songs. If you have a church pianist, then they have to have the written out music. Um, all for free on our Indelible Greats hymn book website, um, and that's been, I think, really, really helpful. If we had went with like a national music publisher, we wouldn't have been able to give that stuff away right. when we did it. But I think giving stuff away is really Served churches and it's helped get this music out there. And even more important, people picked up on the idea and, and done it themselves right. in their own context. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and yeah. I, I mean, the like I said, the, uh, thing, things are actually looking up in, in the uh, the world of uh, evangelical hymnody, and that's
1: maybe it's hard to know. Well, I I feel like I'm not in that world as much. I do think there's more even modern Christian songs that are more honest about brokenness. Right. Um, I feel like that's definitely different than 20 years ago when we started. Like, there are some now, sure. and there's definitely like if I think about, Indelible Grace, and then there were some other retuned hymn people, and then now you have people like you know Matt Boswell, Matt Papa, and a lot of people, a lot of the Sovereign Grace folks writing text. Andrew McCracken now mm-hmm. is like writing text from scratch, and so I think that's a pretty cool thing. They're writing even new hymns. Certainly the Gettys. Um, you know about. But but there's a lot of people doing that sort of thing, that Doxology and Theology um, Conference, the thing that Matt Boswell started, is really encouraging to see a lot of young people writing new texts and new music, and it's substantive, gospel-saturated stuff. Um, that's really cool to me. Because when we went to, to Southern Seminary about 2002, 2003, somewhere like that, we got a grant from Calvin uh, to go do a little tour of different seminaries and there were maybe 50 to 100 people that came out to the chapel. And um, now that place will be packed with this Doxology and Theology Conference. It's just remarkable to see. So I do feel like the Lord is stirring people up in a lot of ways and it probably goes hand in hand with the resurgence of interest in Reformed theology. I certainly am old enough to remember like if you told people you were a Calvinist, they were like, I don't know what that is, but I know I don't like it. And now it's not definitely, you know,
0: now people know what it now, is. Now,
1: like, I can put a Tim Keller book on the little table that we have at the activity fair when new students come to campus, and they're like, oh, we read that in my high school for my doctrine class, you know, and, like, they know about it. So it's it's kind of interesting.
0: I can tell by the, uh, the thundering of my children's feet... Uh and mm-hmm. the ceiling above us, and uh, by the clock that uh, mm-hmm. we should we should be wrapping it up because I know you have a meeting to get yeah, to. Yeah, I got a couple um, more minutes. You said you had I, another question. I do. You wanted I ask. do. Uh, so I, I want to give you sort of the the end of this to mm-hmm. uh, uh, to uh, expand upon. You know, give us give us one or two hymn writers out of history that, that you think every Christian should be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be either the most important or your favorite. Uh, okay. You, know, you can you can take that either way you want.
1: Yeah. Well, certainly you should know about Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley. Um and I think that Ann Steele is one that we should know about who's probably not so well known. Um, she's one that I've really championed. Um, there's a friend of mine, um, an elder at a PCA church now in Birmingham that retypeset Ann Steele's hymns. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Refuge of My Weary Soul. Um, it's all of her hymns and her occasional poems and her psalms. She did thirty odd uh psalm, you know, versions that people don't know about. Um She's remarkable. She's the first hymn writer to write true laments. She lived in the 1700s in Britain. And um, just powerful. You know, really really skilled, but really honest, searing stuff. She writes hymns about night terrors. She writes hymns about all kinds of things. A lot of hymns about struggling with assurance. Um, just powerful, powerful stuff. So I really love Anne Steele. Um, Charles Wesley, I mean... He's just a freak of nature. Most hymn writers <laughs> write in a couple meters. He writes in over 20, um, 6,000 published hymns, maybe 9,000 if you include the unpublished hymns and fragments. Right. Um, just superb skill. Um, the first hymn that I retune, Arise, My Soul Arise, was a Charles Wesley hymn. That's a communion hymn I came to find out later, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't in the hymns for the Lord's Supper that the Wesley brothers put out, but it was nonetheless a communion hymn. And um, Lester Ruth, who's a worship professor at Duke, um, he asked me, he's a Methodist, and he asked me, um, where did you find this Wesley hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise? Because I hadn't been in a Methodist hymn book for a hundred years, but I consider it one of Wesley's best hymns. And Wesley himself kept a notebook of letters people would write to him about how his hymns had been used in their conversion. He had more letters about Arise, My Soul, Arise than any other hymn. And Bruce Hindmarsh found this notebook and... I hope he's going to publish it one day because I think that would be really cool. But anyway, uh, I told him, I was like, well, it, it's been in the Presbyterian hymnal. It's in the Trinity hymnal. Yeah,
0: I was it was in yeah. the Baptist hymnal. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was in a Baptist hymnal too, yeah. And um, so I, it's interesting how sometimes those hymns go out there and even go beyond their denominational tradition and then they get lost from their own denominational tradition.
0: Right.
1: You know, it's it fascinating. So um, I think that one's fabulous. You know, he's got a great little... He's such so skilled in his... Use of um, paradox, for instance, one of my favorites about the Incarnation, I guess Christmas is coming up. He has this, this phrase, he says, being source begins to be. And the way that hymn writers are able to get you to kind of meditate on things is through that use of paradox right. and economy of words. Um, James Montgomery, another great hymn writer you should know, he wrote uh, Angels in the Realms of Glory. And we talked about Go to Dark Gethsemane before. He's a great hymn writer because he was also a newspaper editor who got thrown in jail for criticizing the government. For their politics, so that would interest you you to know about that. He thought they were unfair to the poor. Cooper did the same thing at times in some of his poetry, but um, Montgomery said that um, that you know it's a a good hymn um, should have you know oh I kind of lost my place here wait I was talking about economy of words and paradox oh yeah here's what he says he says the it's really hard to write a good hymn there's only two great poets who are good hymn writers. Most great poets cannot write good hymns because they write too opaque. Right. And a good hymn, Montgomery says, has to be understood the first time you sing it. If Paul, What Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, is it 14, where he talks about worship and how people need to be able to say amen to what's going on. So you need to understand what you're singing, but then you also need to be able to get new depths of meaning as you sing it over and over again. Hmm. And that's what paradox really helps with. You never exhaust that, being source begins to be. Or Augustus top Lady has a great line, Oh love incomprehensible, that made thee bleed for me, the judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. Like that's you know striking, and you just want to stop and kind of meditate on that. You don't get to the bottom of that mystery. Um, I think that that's one of the things that the hymn writer is really great. I'll close with this quote from Spurgeon it's one of my favorites he says that whenever I find something in the Bible that I can't understand consider that God has set there a little altar for me to kneel that the mysteries are intended to be an altar of devotion Hmm. and I think that sometimes we just want to sing things that don't provoke mystery or don't provoke pondering and um, so I, I really love the way the hymns use paradox and help us sit in these mysteries for a few minutes I think that's really helpful
0: and, and your favorite is Steele? Is Anne it?
1: Steele, I think, yeah. Mostly because people didn't know about her. I didn't know about her. And then um, I'll tell you a cool story about Anne Steele. So, you know, we put Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul in the first record. Another one, Thou Lovely Source of True Delight. Um, and then Bruce Heinmarsh, who teaches at Regent in Vancouver, um, came to do a conference for us through this worship grant we got from Calvin Institute of Worship in the early 2000s. And, you know, we heard... Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. And then he took that back and played it for a class of his students uh, up in Vancouver. And one of his students, Cynthia Alders, then went on to do a whole record of Ann Steele, you know, retuned hymns. But even more important for me is that she went and did her master's on Ann Steele, which has been published. It's a book called Expressing the Ineffable. Um, And it's amazing. I learned so much about Ann Steele because... She heard our version and then devoted how many years of her life to researching and writing. She's working on her PhD now. And um, so that's just really cool. So I feel like we've had a little bit of an influence in people like rediscovering her. And I think that's a, a great discovery for people to make.
0: Yeah, and, and that is a place that is a thing you can find at used bookstores, whereas they're you know, Steel? No, oh, uh, I'm thinking yeah. more in terms of old hymns. Old oh, hymns, old hymns,
1: uh, yeah, they're it's very hard to find hymns from the 19th century.
0: Oh, okay. yeah, yeah,
1: hymnals like okay. I mean, and not those little gospel song books from like Moody Sankey, oh, uh, late so 19th century we found era,
0: like Jane Borthwick and, and some of those sorts of things, uh, Wink, Winkleman, Winkleworth. Yeah, uh, Winkworth, Winkworth, Catherine Winkworth. Winkworth You've yeah. so a few of those at, at used bookstores. Yeah. Really yeah. No, ones.
1: you can find those sometimes, right. but it's it's harder to find like pre-Civil War for sure.
0: Oh, well, yeah, sure, Yeah,
1: sure. But Winkworth is awesome. She she and this other Victorian lady like basically had this whole industry of translating German hymns. Yep. And a lot of people think we've been singing like medieval hymns and, you know, ancient church hymns for 1000 It's not true. Right. Like 19th century, you know, James Mason Neal and the Oxford mm-hmm. Movement started translating Greek and Latin hymns, and then Winkworth and some of her friends started doing these German Pray, hymns, which I think are some of the most amazing hymns. German German hymns. As a matter of fact, I did a conference at the last, or a, a little lecture at the last Doxology and Theology conference on German hymns. And uh, there's a hundred thousand German hymns that were written, you know, and that's so many of them are so rich. Some of the best hymns about suffering.
0: Twenty of them are in English,
1: right? I mean, yeah. Oh no, there's a lot of them. Yeah, more than you think. Philip Schaff has a lot of them in that oh, book, true. Christ and Song, because um, he's from the German Reformed Church. And um, Winkworth, you know, she has several volumes of them right. that you can. Now, here's the cool thing: like you can get all of these cool old hymnals that we're talking about on Google Book Search and right. download them as free PDFs. I had to spend a hundred dollars to get a copy of Whitfield's hymn book, and I've not seen another one for sale, but maybe one time in the last twenty years. But you can download it as a PDF for free. You know. And if you like a hymn writer, like if you like Henry Light, "Abide with Me," and um, "Jesus on My Cross," have taken some amazing hymns. Praise to the, you know, praise to the Lord the Almighty. No, that's, uh, that's, that's Neander. Um, praise my soul, the King of Heaven. That's yeah, that one. Anyway, you know, he wrote hundreds of hymns, and you can download a PDF of his complete poetical works. And that's what I've gotten more into in the last ten years. Is not even starting with the hymnals. And that were already curated, but even trying to find what were the hymns these people wrote that never even made a hymnal, yeah. either because they already had hymns for that topic or whatever reason, the theological mood of the time. And I found a lot of really great hymns. That's where you find more obscure hymns that nobody sure. gets upset when you retune them.
0: Uh, sure. Well, and I don't like hate mail. So. People, people are always going to get upset <laughs> about music in the church. It's uh, yeah, uh, they are. It is. It is a pretty
1: intense issue um, for people, and you know. Rightly so. I mean, it's part, of, it's part of what it means to be incarnate and be embodied people. You know, music does does matter. I heard, heard somebody say, you know, recently that, you know, style doesn't matter as long as the gospel's there. And I, I think I would push back on that a little bit. I know what they meant. Um, but the only people that really say that tend to be majority culture people. And so I just think that that's, we need to be careful about that. As a matter of fact, I wrote a chapter in a book called Heal Us Emmanuel. A um, bunch of PCA pastors, we all kind of contributed to this book about racial issues in our own you know, context. And my chapter was on why musical style does matter. Because um, one of the things I see in Galatians is that there's no one pure cultural expression of the gospel. Hmm. And I think sometimes there's a lot of well-meaning Christians that basically believe that Western classical music is the pure cultural expression. Everything else is derivative from that. That's not true. Musically or historically, but um, there's a lot of people that think that, and um, cause some really damaging things to be said when you have that view.
0: Sure. Uh, well, anything to add? Otherwise, we'll uh, we'll, we'll call it there.
1: No. Um, all the In Double Gray CDs are on Spotify. We don't mind. You know, I know a lot of people don't like Spotify. They don't think it makes much money. We, you know, we're happy for people to to listen to it on Spotify. I'd rather listen to it there than on YouTube. <laughs> Because <laughs> YouTube, when people put videos on YouTube, it's usually really crappy audio quality. Sure. Um, but yeah, I hope if you get, people don't know Indelible Grace music, I always tell them to start with the Hymn Sing live record, because that's kind of the greatest hits, and I give some introductions to some of the songs. Um, and then we also made a documentary film that uh, 10 years after the first Indelible Grace record came out, we played this Hymn Sing at the Ryman in Nashville, which is where the Grand Ole Opry started, it's where Bluegrass first was you know, premiered. And um, amazing historic place. And we filmed that and made a documentary film where a lot of the artists that were part of the movement when they were in college can talk 10 years later about what this movement has meant to them. I think that's pretty powerful apologetic for why hymns still matter.
0: And I'll uh, I'll throw in a plug for your... uh... Uh, lectures on the history of hymnody through covenant oh seminary. yeah
1: covenant seminary has those online for free and i do still do that if anybody wants to come to nashville in january i don't know whether this will air but i'm going to do that history of hymnody class on a friday night all day saturday in nashville first weekend in january you can go to covenant to get info on that and uh it's a great town to visit for the weekend sure unless we have ice storms which we could have but
0: right all right well that's yeah anywhere in the south that's mm-hmm. that's a risk yeah uh, well thank you so much for joining us and uh, we, uh, we hope to have you back again and until yeah. then please keep, it up, keep putting out the good music thank you and thank you, listeners, for joining us as well. If you have comments or questions, please feel free to post them on the show notes at christianhumanist.com. Send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or comment on the Facebook page. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our is on is Kristen Filippic. Our audio editor is Brit Stack. Be listening for the next episode of Christian Humanist Profiles.